This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, a people's history. From memes to movements, see how this powerful online community shapes culture and society. Black Twitter, a people's history, is now streaming on Hulu. This is Fresh Air. I'm Terry Gross. With me is Dave Davies, who you know as a longtime interviewer on Fresh Air. Today, he's here as my guest. He's the interviewee. Here's why. Dave has been an indispensable member of our team for many years. The last few months have been a period of transition for Dave, having fulfilled his wish to cut back from a couple of interviews a week on our show to doing occasional interviews. We're grateful to still have him on the show, even if it is only occasional. Before the year ends, we want to pay tribute to him and ask him to share some stories from his broadcasting and newspaper career. I've known Dave since 1983 when he joined WHYY's newsroom covering city politics. From there, he moved to the commercial all-news Philly radio station and then to the newspaper world covering city and state politics and government for the Philadelphia Daily News, where he worked for 20 years and became one of Philly's preeminent city news reporters. In 2010, he returned to WHYY full-time, splitting his position between the news department and fresh air. But he'd started doing interviews on our show back in 2001, even before his official return to radio. Dave has also been my savior when I got a bad cold and lost my voice, when a family member was sick and needed my help, when I needed a vacation. Dave was there to guest host. When I or anyone on the show needs advice about an especially perplexing question relating to journalistic ethics, he's our go-to guy. I really admire his ability to think clearly on and off the air, to explain complicated issues in a clear, engaging way, to know when to be skeptical and how to convey his genuine empathy. He's a great storyteller, even while asking a question. Dave, it's really going to be fun to talk to you as an interviewee. (laughs) So let's begin. You started doing fresh air interviews while you were covering Philadelphia and Pennsylvania politics and government. And those interviews tend to be about policy, campaigning, or corruption. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Was it hard to make the transition to interviews where they're very personal and you're not asking about corruption or campaign spending? You're asking about deeply personal things that are very sensitive to ask somebody to talk about in a public way. Yeah, they're they're different in in many ways. I mean, when I'm reporting, usually what I'm doing is asking questions to elicit information and quotes that I will use among information from many sources in the story. So it's that interview is a part of what's eventually going to be part of the story I tell. In the case of a fresh air interview, this is the product. It also means that I my questions matter. I mean, they are going to be heard by the listener, so they need to be coherent, and I can't stumble through it. And it's one of the reasons that I write out most of my questions beforehand. I may not read them on the air, but it helps if I think through how I'm going to ask this in a coherent way, particularly if you know I'm setting up a film clip or a story. I mean, you really want to make sure because while you're doing an interview on fresh air, the audience is always in your mind. And if you're listening to an answer and something isn't clear because the the guest is using shorthand for something or it's just not quite working, you have to intervene in some way to make sure the audience stays with it. So it's a very, very different experience. And it took some years to really get comfortable with it. 
You covered, I think, eight mayor's races, five administrations, numerous scandals, and no disrespect to Philly, you had to write a lot about corruption. So I want to play an excerpt of an interview that's about organized crime, which sometimes has connections to politics. This isn't a Philadelphia story. This is a Chicago story. It's an interview with Frank Calabrese Jr., uh, whose father was uh, with the head of a big syndicate in Chicago, and he kind of muscled his son to be part of it. Dave, you want to pick up the story and introduce the clip? Yeah. Um, Frank Calabrese Jr. was sort of brought into his father's crime family and did, you know, a lot of stuff, gambling, theft. Uh, he never killed anybody, which uh, he never He almost ki- did, but he didn't. Right. <laughs> yeah. He never killed anybody. He was invited <laughs> to do it. Right, right. He, he avoided committing murder, which allowed him to um, – well, it, it would affect his life later. Essentially, he and his father were, were – and some other relatives, an uncle of his, were all sent to prison for – I think it was a gambling syndicate that they were involved in. And he decided that he was going to have to go to the FBI and help convict his father because his father was just such a bad character that he was unredeemable and that Frank Jr. would never have a real life and too many other people would be hurt if he didn't. So he writes a letter to the FBI and says, I want to cooperate, Um, not in return for anything. He just said, I want to cooperate. They eventually took him up on it. He wore a wire on his father in prison, and his father was indicted, and Frank Jr. testified against him. So let's hear the excerpt of the interview. And this was recorded after Frank Calabrese Jr. wrote a memoir. Eventually, there are indictments against your father and a lot of other members of the Chicago outfit. And there is eventually, of course, a trial. And while you've given the FBI its choice evidence in these tapes, these recordings of your father implicating himself, that's not enough. You've got to go take the stand at the trial, tell the jury the story of your getting the tapes, and also to translate the code that your father uses as he speaks to you. So that means you're going to have an extended uh, stretch on the stand face-to-face with your father. How did you feel approaching that? I felt confident. I knew the day I did the letter my life was going to change, and I know that the day I did the letter that I would be sitting on the stand in the same room as my dad going through all this. So I knew it was going to happen. It's just a matter of time. It's just a matter of waiting. What I never thought about was the emotion that would come over me when I walked in that courtroom from not seeing my dad. I want to say probably for about a good five years I hadn't seen him. And there he is sitting over there. He's aged, and, you know, I walk in the room, and I just didn't stare at him, but out of the corner of my eye, I could see him sitting there, and I could see a dad looking at his son and me looking back at him. And at first you're just looking to see how they look or uh, what's going on with them. You know, and I wanted to run over and hug him. I really wanted to go over there and hug him, and, and, and it killed me. And so that first day on the stand, I only was on the stand for a half hour because it was towards the end of the day. But I'll tell you, after five minutes of being on the stand, it didn't take me long to to have that love for my dad turn into hatred for my dad and, and, and remind me of what I'm doing, and I'm sitting up there doing it. And explain the transformation. Was it the questions you had to answer? No, no. It was my father sitting over there. The, the gestures he was making and trying to stare and it, it was my, you know, being in a room with my father, you could, it didn't take long because I knew him and I knew what he was doing. I knew what he was trying to do. What gestures do you mean? 
Yeah, he, he laughed. He shook his head when I talked. He bounced around in his chair. He tried giving me, you know, and I won't look at him. I won't give him the satisfaction. The other thing is there was a huge volume of material that you had to present to a jury in a calm and convincing way. Yeah, and, you know, it wasn't hard because I lived it, and I knew the codes. And, um, you know, once I settled in, I knew I had a job to do. Now, I could tell you that when I, every day that I went home from the court, and I might have slept an hour a night, I cried. I paced, um, you know, and, and, and it wasn't about what I had to do in court. It was about, you know, you know it's my father. You know, I, I love him dearly to this day, but I don't, I didn't love his ways. And I still don't understand why he didn't have mine and my brother's backs ever. When you undertook the step to testify against your father, and, and we got to say not just your father. I mean, other people went down. This was a huge indictment, a massive case. You chose not to go into the witness protection program. You didn't want to be cut off from your family. You wanted to be able to be honest and earn a living in some way. Um, what can you tell us about your life today? Um. Yeah, the witness protection, I've caught, caught a lot of flack uh, for not going, uh, but I, I, I have to be here. I have to be here. I have to give my father that chance of getting revenge on me if he needs to, and I didn't want to bring my kids into that program. I know nobody's going to bother my kids, and I don't want anybody to bother my brothers, so they know where I'm at. Did, did you just say that you had to give your dad the chance to come after you if he wants to? Yeah, what do you mean? Well, I, I feel that there's a difference between, you know, one of the, the names that they like to tag um, people with is uh, rat. And, you know, I don't feel I'm a rat, a uh, cooperating witness. I am a uh, turncoat. I mean, you could call me a lot of different things, but rats run and hide, and I couldn't run and hide. Hmm. You know, Frank, when I read the beginning of your book— and it begins with you writing, you're, you're in prison and you write the letter to the FBI saying, I want to talk to you about this. And you explain your motivation at the beginning of the book that, that you wanted to help them make sure that your father was kept in prison the rest of his life. And I read that and thought, that can't be the real reason. Whenever anybody in organized crime testifies or informs on, on people, it's because there's something in it for them. They want a reduced mm -hmm. sentence. They want immunity. They want a deal. You didn't get any of that, did you? Oh, what I got is a chance to live my life free and clear of my dad. So I did get something. And, I, and, and a lot of people around me also got to live their lives free of them too. But to this day, my father sitting locked behind three doors still instills fear in a lot of people. People are still scared sometimes to mention his name. So that was Dave Davies' interview with Frank Calabrese Jr. The interview was recorded in 2011 and 2011, and his father, Frank Calabrese Sr., died the following year in prison. Um, Dave, I love that interview. Um, it's, it's really gripping. And I'm wondering, like, was he in the studio with you or was it long distance? And do you know what his reaction was when it was over? Um. He was long, it was long distance. And, and before I just answer that directly, Terry, I just want to mention, uh, uh, give a shout out to Sam Brigger, who is our books editor, who found this story for us. I mean, you know, so much of what we do depends on having a good guest with a story to tell. And the staff on Fresh Air are just so great at doing this. I mean, I... I don't want to start mentioning names because I'll leave somebody out. But these folks, I mean, you, you mentioned that I'm doing less on the show now. And 
these folks are kind of a second family to me, and I really miss them, and I want people to know how terrific they are and valuable and great at what they do. I second everything you just said, except for missing them because <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. I'm here. <laughs> you are here. Yeah, yeah. Frank Calabrese, when we were not in the same studio, and when we finished the interview, he said that he felt just emotionally wrecked by telling me that story. It was a reminder that even though someone may have written about it, and as his case, told the story probably dozens of times, that doesn't mean it's going to be easy for them. And I really appreciated him, um, you know, bearing with it and sharing it with us. I want to play another clip from one of your interviews that you recorded in 2013. And it has a very surprising and dramatic postscript that we'll talk about after we hear the clip. The interview is with Kate Christensen, who had just published a memoir that revolved around food and its connections to her emotional life. It was called Blue Plate Special, an Autobiography of My Appetites. You want to take it from here and introduce the clip? Yeah. Um, Kate is a terrific writer, and this describes her life, including some painful stuff. I mean, her father abused her mother, and she writes about that. And also, when she was in high school, she went to a private school in upstate New York, where it turned out there was a math teacher who would take her into the woods uh, on walks, pin her against a tree, and then fondle her. And this went on for more than more than part of her junior and senior years. And so at, at a certain point in the interview, I brought it up, and we're going to hear, I guess, a slightly edited version of that exchange. So here's the excerpt of Dave's interview with Kate Christensen. And then there were, there were some very appalling behavior by some of the adults at the school. Yes. When I think back to the, to the 70s, to the late 70s in high school, and what it was like in that school, and how the grown-ups acted and how the students acted, I feel like I was personally appalled. A lot of the teachers were sleeping with students. But the students, the student body in general, there wasn't a sort of outrage about it. And um, it, it seemed to be what was happening. It was, it was sort of trendy. Well, I mean, you were a victim. I mean, this teacher um, repeatedly <laughs> m- molested you. I mean, I mean, not rape. I mean, but I mean, clothes were on. But it was, you know, there was contact that was utterly inappropriate. It happened more than once, and and you, as a kid, kind of were overwhelmed and couldn't couldn't resist. When I when you say you were a victim, I think was I? I I don't I don't really identify that way. I I see it as I was. Uh, a, a young girl far from home, and this this man, um, he liked to paw me repeatedly. <laughs> um, but I, I didn't let it – see, I didn't allow it, and that was part of the problem. I didn't allow myself to, to be upset by it. I didn't allow myself to really feel the full extent of the rage that might have been a more appropriate response. You know, I was 16 and naive and, and didn't – and I didn't speak up and I didn't, I didn't ever tell him to stop. Do do you think that was emotionally damaging to you? I mean, it's the kind of thing that today, I mean, the guy would spend years in prison for. I know. I know. It was it's so different now and I'm glad it's so different because I feel like adolescence is such a weird time and I I mean, so much of my energy was going toward acting like I had it all together when in fact I was falling apart on a daily basis. So that was Dave's interview with Kate Christensen, a short excerpt. Dave, how did you think the interview went when it was over? And compare that to what Kate Christensen wrote subsequent to the interview in an article in Elle magazine. Well, I thought the interview went 
fine. I mean, we covered a lot of ground. The, the part that we heard was just a small part of the interview. And it was an, she, she has an interesting life, and it was an interesting story. But then about six or seven months later, um, an article appeared in Elle magazine, which Kate Christensen had written, which was about that interview and its fallout. Um, one thing she wrote was that the interview was actually very painful and traumatic to her. And she sort of described me as somebody pushing her to reveal these things that were hard. I mean, she described me, she said at one point, I was like a bloodhound on the scent of good radio, which kind of bothered me because I thought I was being reasonably, you know, patient and sympathetic to her. Although looking back, listening back again, I realize you can hear that nervousness in her voice, that nervous giggle. And I wish I just said, you know, I'm so sorry that you had to endure this as a teenager. And I, I don't know that it would have mattered. I mean, it's these interviews are very artificial circumstances. She's in a studio with headphones. But I, wish, I just wish I had been a little more attentive and empathetic. In any case, what she said happened is after the interview, parents at that school now, I mean decades later, were so infuriated by that, they got in touch with the administrators, which hired an investigator, a woman who had been uh, head of, I think, uh, sex crimes at a DA's office, and they investigated this whole thing. They identified this teacher who was no longer teaching there, but a member of the community. They publicly exposed him, banned him from further contact with the school. And in fact, a few other people who had engaged in this behavior were exposed. And they sent an investigator out to talk to Kate. She was in, in Portland, Maine, uh, a, a woman, a lawyer, and Kate said that, you know, when she sat down with this lawyer, that the lawyer asked a question and Kate said, oh, my friends had it so much worse and then burst into uncontrolled sobbing 35 years too late. And if you read the article, you can see it online. You can see how this really affected her emotionally and prevented her from having fulfilling sexual relationships and just being herself. And and after that, I she got help and I think – dealt with it in a, day, in a way that she hadn't. Um, it was a really remarkable thing. I traded emails with her last week, and she said, I wanted to make sure she was comfortable with me bringing this up again. She said, yeah, the interview changed my life. And it, and it really, it was kind of a learning experience for me, too. Were you shocked to see what a profound effect the interview had on her, how first she felt that you kind of exploited her pain, and then because people came forward, as a result of her coming forward, that it, it changed her life in such a positive way. Yeah, I didn't feel like her description of me, that wasn't the me that I thought I was in that interview, but th but that's the way she experienced it at the time, and I have to respect that. Absolutely. One thing I learned from that interview is just because someone has written about a difficult experience, maybe more than once, doesn't mean that they're going to be comfortable talking about it, and you have to be aware of that. Um, and the second thing is that, you know, what we do matters. I mean, this stuff goes out into the world and can have impact. By the way, she uh, has remained productive. Her latest novel is called Welcome, Welcome Home, Stranger, and she has a real career, and I hope she's happy. You know, but that's, this is true for both of us and probably for all, you know, broadcast interviewers. You never know what happens after an interview ends. You have this really intimate conversation on the air sometimes. You've asked about the most personal thing. Because the person you're interviewing has probably written about it in some way, either through fiction or through memoir. 
And then you part ways and you may never see them again. And of course, may never know about the impact, if there was any impact on, on, on their lives. Yeah, so true. I mean, we only get the tiniest fraction of reaction that they have and that others have to these things. I guess that's just the way it is. But in this case, I'm glad it led to something positive. Okay, it's time for another break. Let me reintroduce you. I'm talking with Fresh Air's Dave Davies, and he's a longtime interview contributor on our show. But this year, he started cutting back on the number of interviews. So we're paying tribute to him before the year ends. And we'll be back with more of my interview with Dave after we take a short break. I'm Terry Gross, and this is Fresh Air. This message comes from Apple Card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase. That's 3% on products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Mass Mutual. According to Calendar.com, the average person schedules just 4.5 hours per year on finances. Mass Mutual gets it. Life is busy. If you can't find time to plan your financial future, find someone who can. Like a Mass Mutual financial professional. For the last 170 years, they've helped people plan for retirement, college tuition, and any other short or long-term financial goals. Learn more at MassMutual.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Teladoc Health. There are lots of reasons for wanting to be healthy. Family, work, living a fuller life. Teladoc Health understands. Whether you have diabetes, high blood pressure, or just need to manage your weight, Teladoc Health can help. Visit teledochealth.com slash what's your why for more information. That's T-E-L-A-D-O-C health slash what's your why. Hi, I'm Tanya Mosley, co-host of Fresh Air. Before we get back to our show, we want to take a minute to say thank you so much to our Fresh Air Plus supporters and anyone listening who donates to public media. Everything you hear from the NPR network really does depend on your contributions. For anyone listening who isn't a supporter yet, right now is a great time to get involved. If you like perks, Fresh Air Plus offers sponsor-free listening and exclusive bonus episodes. If you want to make a tax-deductible donation to your favorite NPR station or stations, that's great too. We've even had NPR Plus subscribers make additional contributions. No matter how you give, your donation helps us continue to bring you news and shows across the NPR network. If you value what we do here, please give today at donate.npr.org slash freshair or explore NPR Plus at plus.npr.org. Thanks. Let's get back to my interview with Dave Davies. This is an interview that's very special to me because Dave has been my long-term colleague here on Fresh Air. He's contributed a zillion interviews, great interviews to our show. And this year he decided it's time for him to do fewer interviews. And um, we we miss him, uh, but we appreciate the interviews that he's still doing. Before the year ends, we wanted to pay tribute to him and have him share some stories about his long career in broadcasting and in the newspaper world. 
Dave, I want to play another interview of yours, and this is an interview with Robert Caro, who's famous for his biographies of Robert Moses. That book was called The Power Broker, and for his multi-volume biography of Lyndon Johnson, President Johnson. And, you know, Caro's biographies are so well-researched and so detailed yet compelling, and very long as well, hard to prepare for. (laughs) So the excerpt that we're going to hear is him talking about when he interviewed former First Lady, Lady Bird Johnson, about LBJ's extramarital affair with someone named Alice March. Um, Do you want to pick it up from there? Sure. Um, Alice Marsh, she was originally Alice Glass, and she was someone that that LBJ knew. And and Carol concluded that they had, in all likelihood, had an affair. They had an association for many, many years after that in which she was a good friend and political advisor. And he felt he had to research that side of the story. And so he went to this town where Alice Marsh had lived and asked a lot of questions. And he knew when he started asking questions that would get back to Lady Bird, Lyndon Johnson's you know, widow who was still alive. And this clip is him describing what happened when Mrs. Johnson asked her folks to tell Robert Caro that she wanted to talk to him. And so he came for a conversation after he had been investigating this woman that uh, Lyndon Johnson had had this relationship with. And Lady Bird Johnson knew that he'd been investigating. Right, because word had to have gotten back to her. Yeah. So let, let's hear that excerpt. Secretary says she'd like Mrs. Johnson would like to see you out at the ranch this Saturday, so I went out so there. So she summoned you for this. Yes. Oh. So she sits at the head of the table, and I'm sitting at her right hand. My stenographer's notebook, where I take notes, is to my right hand. So I'm looking down at the stenographer's notebook, which is, if you can picture it, it means I'm looking away from her. And without a word of preamble, she starts telling me about Alice Glass, and how important her influence was in Lyndon's life. And, you know, she talks about how elegant, how beautiful and elegant she was. She says something like, it's quotes in the book, I remember her in a succession of lovely dresses and me in less lovely. She says, you know, any, everything Alice told him, he had long, on, when he comes to Congress, she, she meets him when he's a new congressman and his arms are very long and ungainly. She says, make an advantage of that by wearing always French cuffs with beautiful cufflinks. And he did that for the rest of his life. And there are times in his life where she saved his political career, one in particular. Alice Marsh did. Alice Marsh did. But she's talking about this Lady Bird, and during the whole time she's talking to me, I can't bear to look up at her. I just sit there writing notes. So she speaks admiringly of this woman who— probably had an affair with her husband. You know, and it's interesting because you spent so much time talking to Lyndon Johnson's little brother, Sam Houston Johnson, and wanting to get the real story from him. Were you prepared to just leave it there with Lady Bird? I mean, not ask about the pain it might have caused? Let's say I didn't ask any questions at that interview. It's the only interview that I can remember where I didn't ask any questions and, in fact, I couldn't bear to look up at the person I was interviewing. And so you didn't feel like that was something you just needed to get to the bottom of? Well, from my point of view, I had gotten to the bottom of it because I had seen, I could document 
how she said, for example, a number of times in which she saved his political career. You know, he relied on her. During the war, he's in Australia. So that was Robert Caro after he'd published a memoir about writing massive biographies of powerful people. And that was Dave Davies doing the interview. It was recorded in 2019 after the memoir was published. Dave, it obviously made a really big impression on you that when Lady Bird Johnson was talking about basically the importance of President Johnson's mistress in his life, um, that Carol couldn't even look at Lady Bird and didn't ask her any follow-up questions. Have you had an experience in your interviewing career where you couldn't bear to look at the person and it was so personal you didn't even ask follow-ups and you didn't want to ask about the pain that that experience caused? You know, you know I'll just tell you one thing that comes to mind. Um, I don't know if this is so relevant or useful, but um, I'd gotten a tip about uh, a tyrannical boss in the city's water department. Um, uh, those are the toughest stories to write because they involve stories that are, that are very hard to verify. There's often no little, there's little documentation. But this person had had told me that this boss was just such a tyrant, and how he had really berated and abused this one guy who had a special needs um, son. And I don't remember all the details, but I thought, well, this is worth pursuing. And so I called this guy time and time and time again. He wouldn't call me back. And I finally just, you know, I had his address and I went up and knocked on his door. And he opened it and he knew who I was. And he said, all right, come in. And we sat down at his kitchen table and he started talking about a little bit. And soon he was just weeping. I mean, full out bawling. And what he said, he was absolutely right about, which was, if you write this story, it'll be a story in the paper and some people will read it, but nothing's going to happen to this person. And my life's really going to be ruined. I need this job. And I walked away from the story. I just, I just I thought, he is right. I mean, this person's not going to be fired or prosecuted. Um, it's just it, and he is going to endure terrible personal cost, and that was one where I just said, "Yeah, you know what? I've put a lot of hours in here. I'm not going to do this story." And I'm sure you always felt good about that decision afterwards. I think it was the right call. Yeah, um, but it's tough. I mean, I think a lot of reporters just, you know, have the ability to. To summon a level of detachment that says, you know, not my problem where the chips land. Uh, and I couldn't, couldn't ever quite do that. I respect that. Um, since so much of Caro's book was about, you know, writing massive biographies, researching them, interviewing people, did you learn anything about interviewing or reporting from reading that memoir that's been helpful to you? No, it mostly made me feel small. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Um, you know, I, I mean, what he was doing is a lot of what I did with the newspaper, which is to mine public records and to develop sources. But, you know, if I worked on a story for a couple of months, that was a long time. I mean, he worked for years on these things. And it, I, I was kind of in awe of his determination. Well, we have to take another break, so let me reintroduce you if you're just joining us. My guest is Dave Davies. You know him as a longtime Fresh Air interviewer. We'll be right back after a short break. This is Fresh Air. 
Support for NPR and the following message come from the American Cancer Society. Dr. Alpa Patel leads a team that researches cancer risk factors, and she shares how her team makes an impact. We always do what we like to think of as actionable science. So the work that we do makes its way to things like nutrition and physical activity guidelines for cancer.org, where millions of people come each year to learn about how they can better prevent cancer. To learn more, go to cancer.org. Support for NPR and the following message come from NPR sponsor Allianz Travel Insurance. International travel can be life-changing, but an unexpected emergency can make your trip memorable for all the wrong reasons. Allianz Travel Insurance provides benefits for medical emergencies, trip cancellations, travel delays, and more. Get a quote at AllianzTravelInsurance.com. Let's get back to my interview with Dave Davies, who's been contributing interviews to Fresh Air since 2001. Um, And then um, recently he decided it's time to cut back on the number of interviews. So we're paying tribute to him before the year ends. But he will be back next year just doing fewer interviews than he used to do. Um, I want to play another clip. And people who know you well from Fresh Air know that one of your specialties is sports. Like when when we get a sports book or when it's like World Series time or spring training or Super Bowl or whatever, if there's an interview on Fresh Air about it, it's going to be yours. At least that's been the history of it. So this is a sports-related interview, and it's an interview with Joe Buck, who is uh, is still or was? Is uh, still. He's probably probably the best-known television sports broadcaster. And my question demonstrates why you do the sports <laughs> interviews. So he's a play-by-play sports announcer, and when you interviewed him, uh, he had done 19 World Series and four Super Bowls and was about to do his fifth. What else do you want to say about this before we hear it? Because I, I know what I want to say. I was interested in the craft of what he does. I mean, that you know, the ability to... Again and again, while you're watching a game live, describe what people are already seeing on their televisions in a way that kind of connects with and enhances the experience. And there's no script for that, right? You're just watching the action and calling it live. And so I picked an example of that that I, that I remembered. Yeah, and what I have to say, I'll say for after we hear the clip. So this is Dave interviewing Joe Buck. All right. Now, I want to play a call of yours, which is exactly about this, accentuating what the audience sees, not repeating it. This is from 2008, the National League Championship Series, Phillies versus Dodgers. This Our program is broadcast from Philadelphia, so I'm a Phillies fan. I remember watching this game. And it's a home run call. And I'm going to just say two things about what the audience sees because they're not going to hear this in your call. But what the audience sees is a home run. The batter is Matt Stairs. He's a beefy guy with a compact swing, powerful swing. It's a tense moment. The Phillies are making a comeback in an important game. So we see this, this compact swing drive the ball out. And then the other thing is this game is in Dodger Stadium, Chavez Ravine, where the bleachers are relatively small and you can see the desert Uh, in the dark outside. And as the ball flies over the right field fence, you see the ball move from light into shadow. That's what the audience sees. Let's listen to your call. Stairs rips one into the night, deep into right, way out of here. And Philadelphia gets a pinch hit, two-run shot. And the Phillies lead 7-5 in the eighth. 
Now, I've remembered that call for eight years because it's just a lovely piece of baseball poetry. Stairs rips one into the night as you see the ball disappear into the shadows. You know, writers have time to craft phrases like that. You've got to do it in the moment. Is there a technique? Are there muscles that you develop for coming up with that quick, evocative turn of phrase? Well, I think the first thing is you have to be prepared. And if you're prepared, you can be relaxed. And I'm not giving you a canned answer. I've never thought about it in these terms, really. But I think if you are ready for a moment like that, and by ready, I mean you've got all the stats of stairs at your fingertips if you want to go there. You know who's on the mound. You're, you're aware of the game situation. And now you can just sit back and watch. So that's Dave Davies interviewing Joe Buck in 2017, and and Joe Buck had just published a memoir, right, Dave? Right. So here's what I want to say about the interview. Your description of what happened with that play, your description of of the ball disappearing into the shadows, you could see the desert, the dark desert, um... It's so much more vivid than what Joe Buck had to say. I had to listen to that tape twice before I really like heard he rips one into the night because because it's just it 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 goes by quickly. It goes by really quickly. But your description I, that was totally imprinted in my mind. I I just saw it. You're so good at describing things, and that's that's why we're playing that clip. Well, well, you know the thing is that I I remember being impressed by it because. You know, you and I listening to it now in the audience now, we're not seeing the play. But when you see it and when you see that ball go into the shadows and you hear say, you know, stairs rips one into the night, it just captures exactly what happened. So it it kind of took a long setup. But that, without that, it, it doesn't really get the point. I want to talk with you about some of the other jobs you have held besides being a reporter or an interviewer. Um, let's start with and I think this was in Philly, you drove a taxi. And this was in the years before Uber and Lyft. So like if you wanted to hire somebody to drive you, it was either a limo or a taxi. Um, Were you ever scared? Yeah, yeah. There were a couple of times. um, Two guys got in the the cabin at at night in, in Philly, and one of them was talking about there's a code, I don't remember what it is now, that that you say into the radio to the dispatcher when you're in trouble and you need police. And this guy knew what the code was and he was talking about it. And he was – I think he was just messing with me. But but it, it made me very nervous. There was another time when I, I picked up a woman who was quite drunk uh, who said she needed to go to this hotel she lived in to, to get, the, get the money to pay me. Um, this was actually during the day. And the place that she took me to was a really, really funky place. It's now been demolished. Uh, I, uh, I guess you might call it an SRO, I mean, a single-room occupancy place. And she disappears into this place to go get the money, and I'm out there waiting. And it's not the, not the safest of neighborhoods. So I get outside of the cab and try to lean against it like I'm a tough guy, and I'm not a tough guy. But I want <laughs> I want to look I'm like, to I'm, picture this. like that, like don't mess with me. Mm-hmm. And she doesn't come out. She doesn't come out. So I decide I've got to go in and find her. So I go in, and it's this dark place. There's the stairwell. She's on the fourth floor. I got to go up. It's just it's, it was very unnerving. The funny thing is that when I found her, she's flinging herself against this door because she says she's locked out, and she's trying to break the door down because she's got to get in to get her check so we can cash that and I can get paid. 
So I quickly realized that it's in my interest to make sure that she gets through the door. So I said, step back. <laughs> and I kicked the door in. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. I just, you know, she was, I figured she was responsible. We're going to break the door. So now I was part of the we. And I, you know, and I had a fairly significant fare on the meter at that point. I didn't want to just walk away from it. I, I would have had to cover that. And so she goes in, she gets the check, and then the then the building manager comes up, attracted by the commotion, and he says, hey, what, what what's going on here? And then she points at me and says, he knocked the door down. <laughs> anyway, I explained, look, I explained what happened. We get the check. We, go get, we got it cashed. And we ended up having a nice conversation. Um, never saw her again, but one of those weird experiences that can happen when you're driving a cab. You spent time as a welder in a shipyard mm-hmm. in Philly? Mm-hmm. What was that like? Uh, I think one of the happiest days of my life was when I got laid off. <laughs> it, was, it was hard work, and it was it was in it, it was on a shipyard on a river in a bitterly cold winter. And you're when you're building a ship, it's all steel around you, and it just it's it's all so freezing cold. But it was interesting work. I mean, it was interesting to learn about welding. It was interesting to see how ships are made. We worked on container ships on oil tankers. Um, but, yeah, it was not not a career I wanted to have. Okay. We're going to take a break here, and then we'll talk some more with my guest and fellow Fresh Air interviewer, Dave Davies. This is Fresh Air. This message comes from NPR sponsor Planet Oat. While some podcast topics can be complex and pretty heady, Planet Oat oat milk is an uncomplicated no-brainer. It's rich, creamy, and an excellent source of calcium with vitamins A and D. Also, Planet Oat's unsweetened varieties have zero grams of sugar. It's great in coffee, cereal, smoothies, you name it. So next time you're at the grocery store, save the overthinking for the podcast and reach for the one that has it all. Planet Oat oat milk or visit planetoat.com for more. This message comes from NPR sponsor Mattress Firm. How do you sleep at night? Mattress Firm can help anyone sleep at night. Mattress Firm's sleep experts receive 200-plus hours of training annually to help you get your best rest. Upgrade your sleep with a Tempur-Pedic mattress made with a -a one-of-a-kind, infinitely adaptable temper material for exceptional support to help alleviate aches and pains. Get matched at Mattress Firm's Memorial Day sale and sleep at night. You grew up in South Texas. Mm -hmm. Describe the neighborhood that you grew up in or the part of Texas that you grew up in? Well, um, Corpus Christi, it's a coastal city. It was uh, a working-class neighborhood of, you know, single-story frame houses, went to public schools. You know, both of my parents grew up on farms. I mean, they actually spent a lot of their years in rural poverty. They were on farm, family farms during the Depression and went through some rough years. That was up in West Texas. My dad was in West Texas. My mom was in southern Oklahoma. And she used to tell me they would they would close school in the fall so everybody, all the kids could go out and pick cotton. Um, but anyway, they, they, they got married and made our, way, made our way down to Corpus Christi, and that's where I grew up. Am I r- right in saying that your grandfather, one of your grandfathers, drove cattle? Yeah, this is a fun little story. He was one of the last participated as – he was probably about 13 – in one of the last horse-driven cattle drives that went down Main Street in Lubbock, Texas. I think it's called Main Street. It was a, a big boulevard there. Yeah, he was – I interviewed him about this when he, he lived when it was 90s. And when I first started in radio, I went and did an interview with him. And he um, kind of knew these cowboys because he was, was on a farm. And 
a, a little guy like him who was a good horseman was valuable because they could ride these lighter horses, which were more nimble, which were really effective in cutting out cattle. And so he got a fair amount of work doing that, and he went on this trail drive. Uh, started in, I don't know if it started in Lubbock, but it went through Lubbock and somewhere up north. I don't know exactly where. But there was a story about it in the, in the Lubbock newspaper. So, yeah, that's, uh, that's my heritage. Yes, my connection with cattle drive is one of my favorite shows growing up was Rawhide. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Rowdy which is, yeah, yeah, exactly, um, which was about a cattle drive, and Clint Eastwood played like the assistant uh yeah, trail boss? Yeah, trail yeah. boss, yeah, the assistant trail boss. And this was before Clint Eastwood was famous as a, as a movie God, star. That's right. That's yeah, right. That's and, right. and um, so, you know, I was in elementary school, and I just, like, loved that show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, great song. Oh, the Frankie Lane sang the, mm-hmm. sang the theme song. That was really great. Mm-hmm. But um, the other thing I'm thinking of is, like, it must be, it must feel like such a distance between your grandfather, you know, being a cowboy in a, in a cattle drive and your work as a city journalist. Yeah. I think to a lot of my extended family, it was just weird that you'd move out of Texas. I mean, it's, you know, I have, I have these, I have cousins that I'm very fond of and I never quite got that, 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 you know, Dave moved up, up, up North. But yeah, I, I, I sort of came up here and found a home in Philly and liked it. And yeah, it's such a different world. It's, it's, it's very odd that, I spent decades covering, you know, I drove a cab in Philly. I spent decades covering politics. I know so many neighborhoods and so many politicians. And although I have great affection for for Texas, I don't have the same kind of knowledge because I've been away for so long. But, yeah, completely different worlds. I think our listeners will note that you don't seem to have a Texas accent. Did you ever? Probably did. Um, My parents certainly did. it's funny. My mom used to. I used to. She used to use the expression. You know. You know the expression. Go jump in the lake. Yeah. She sure. would. She would say that. Not and, there were any lakes where I lived, but <laughs> right. in Brooklyn. I, when she would say that, I thought she was saying go jump in the leg. You know, the limb, because she would say go go jump in the leg, and I thought that. So yeah, my parents had had Texas accents, and I I remember in I think junior high and high school being aware. That the people on television, like in the newscasters, spoke this standard English. And I kind of – I just decided to do that. I don't know. I did. And um, How old were you when you decided to do that? I don't remember exactly. Probably in high school. Mm-hmm. I just kind of felt like that. You know, that's what sort of educated people sort of sounded like. And If I woke you in the middle of the night, would you have a Texas accent? I doubt it. I doubt it. Right. No. In fact, what's scary is occasionally I'll, I'll hear a Philly accent creeping into me. You know, that – uh, the long O, like home becomes home. Yeah. I'm the home depot. I, wow, where did that come from? <laughs> <laughs> you hear something, you pick it up. Yeah, yeah. Dave, I've had a really good time doing this. <laughs> I'm really glad we did it. Yeah, you know, it's funny, Terry. You, you and I, have, we've worked on the same show for so long, but we don't work together much. We work in parallel, you know. That's exactly you're right. You're doing a show or I'm doing a show. So we and, don't actually talk that much. And either you're super busy on deadline or I'm super busy on deadline or we're both super busy on deadline. So, yeah, we don't get to talk that much, which is one of the reasons I so thoroughly enjoyed this because it was just a really focused conversation with you. And I got, I got to learn things I didn't know about you. Thanks for asking, Terry. And be, before we go, I, th- I, I just want to say, because you've said a lot of nice things about my work, is that um, – you know, in the 1980s, when I first came to the station, Fresh Air was a local show. But even then, everybody knew 
that. I mean, everybody in Philadelphia who listened, and it was a large audience in, in the Philly area, everybody knew what Terry Gross was doing was distinctly different, that this was something alone and apart in the world of interviewing, which is why, you know, you, 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 know, you eventually got, with the help of the terrific Bill Simring, our station manager, got onto uh, NPR nationally, first weekly and then daily, and then, you know, the nation embraced it as they do. And when many years after that, I was invited to do this, it was an intimidating thing to, to pick up Terry Gross's microphone. And the one thing that I've done from the beginning is to really prepare very, very thoroughly for every interview because, you know, <laughs> I mean, there's a standard here, right? People are used to hearing Terry and you better bring your A game. Um, and I, that's never stopped. I've gotten more comfortable with it. But the thorough preparation is really, I think, in some ways, one of the things that defines the show. And I've never given this up. So thank you for giving me a chance to be here and letting me grow into the job. It's It's been a really meaningful thing in my life. And I'm so glad you're still doing it. Uh, thank you, Dave. And we have really treasured having you on the show and continue to do so, you know, thank you for everything you've done on our show and will continue to do. Thank you, Terry. Dave Davies has been contributing interviews to Fresh Air since 2001, and there's more to come. Tomorrow on Fresh Air, I'll talk with Liz Cheney about witnessing and opposing members of her own Republican Party who she says once seemed reasonable but violated their oath to the Constitution out of political expediency and loyalty to Donald Trump. After being ousted by her party because she voted to impeach Trump after January 6th, she became one of two Republican congressmen who served on the House committee that investigated January 6th. She's written a new memoir. I hope you'll join us. To keep up with what's on the show and get highlights of our interviews, follow us on Instagram at NPR Fresh Air. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Salat, Phyllis Myers, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Saman, Anne-Marie Boldonado, Teresa Madden, Thea Chaloner, Seth Kelly, and Susan Yakundi. Our digital media producer is Molly C.V. Nesper. Roberta Shorrock directs the show. Our co-host is Tanya Mosley. I'm Terry Gross. This message comes from NPR sponsor Charles Schwab with their original podcast, Choiceology. Hosted by Katie Milkman, an award-winning behavioral scientist and author of the best-selling book, How to Change, Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind people's decisions. Hear true stories from Nobel laureates, historians, authors, athletes, and more about why people do the things they do. Download the latest episode and subscribe at schwab.com slash podcast or wherever you listen. This message comes from NPR sponsor Mint Mobile. From the gas pump to the grocery store, inflation is everywhere. So Mint Mobile is offering premium wireless starting at just $15 a month. To get your new phone plan for just $15, go to mintmobile.com slash switch. This message comes from Pushkin. In the original audiobook, The Art of Small Talk, actresses and comedians Casey Wilson and Jessica St. Clair share six simple rules for how to engage in small talk. Available on Audible, Spotify, or wherever you get your audiobooks.